podcast with a British twist. I am your host, John McGee. My guest today will be known to all of you who choose the radio option on your MLB.tv packages, especially those of you who've been tuning into coverage of either the Florida Marlins or the Atlanta Braves over the last 20 years or so. A welcome to Batflips and Nerds, the voice of ESPN Radio's baseball, John Shombie. How are you, John? John, what's happening, man? How are you? I'm very, very well. So first things first, do I call you John or do I call you Boog? I, I think Boog probably. I never introduced myself to that, but I was given that nickname, I guess, 1993 when I first started working in uh, in radio. And uh, I'm a big redheaded guy and Boog Pal, the former Oriole and Indian, among others, big redheaded guy and the nickname stuck. So um, Boog works. It's not a bad guy to be named after, I guess. Pretty, pretty, no, pretty iconic. It's funny because it, it it served me well early, you know, from 93 to 96. I was just doing radio stuff and I'd go to the ballpark and I'd meet scouts and baseball people because I was such a junkie. And people remembered my name because of that. So that mm. that was that was always helpful, you know, sort of the, the combo of the visual aid of my hair and size with the nickname it allowed people to probably remember my name a bit more easily. So do you think that's uh, maybe maybe you've got something to thank Boog Powell for? Maybe that helped get the break, uh, the, the big guy with the redhead? Well, I will tell you this. The first time that I met him at his barbecue stand in Camden Yards, I went up to him and I wasn't exactly sure how I was going to deliver the message in terms of stammering and stumbling and I stole your nickname and so forth. And he just cut me off and could not have been more kind and said, Oh, I know who you are. He actually <laughs> spends a lot of time in the keys. And at the time I was with the Marlins when I met him. And so he had heard me on the radio and I had pictures with him and, you know, I do Wednesday nights on TV as well. And then a couple of different times they've set me up where I think I'm taking it out of the commercial on television. And instead we have a camera on Boog Powell over the right field wall out on Utah Street, <laughs> and he just takes it back, letting everybody know that he's he's the real Boog. So <laughs> that's brilliant. Uh, so you said there, and I said at the top that you you started off calling the, the Marlins right right at the start of the Marlins as a franchise, but ironically also in in the heyday of the franchise, really. So I can imagine those were some fun times calling the Marlins, particularly in 1997 and, and 2003. Yes. Yeah, so 97, I was the pregame and postgame guy on the radio, but I traveled and was a part of the broadcast doing color and scores. I did a tiny bit of play by play at the end of the year, but I was, you know, traveled all 162 and all the playoffs and was there for game seven and Craig Council scoring. And then I guess by 2000, I was doing every game and it may have been 2001, but I where I was settled in every game. And, and by 03, I, I would say that 03 was the team that I probably had a greater connection to because having been there since 97, the 03 team was really comprised of so many of that group that had been cultivated from the fire sale after they mm -hmm. sold off all the players in 97. So you know, it was an infield of Mike Lowell, Alex Gonzalez, Luis Castillo, Derek Lee, and Mike Lowell and Derek Lee, you know, were part of trades um, mm. 
after the 97 team and Gonzalez and Castillo were, were draft guys. And then, you know, when the team was bad, they ended up getting the, the second overall pick in the draft. And so I guess it was 1999 and Josh Beckett was the second overall pick mm. and mm. so on and so forth. So it was a group that had been around a while. So there was a, a personal connection to that, to that lot. I mean, 97 was, was amazing as well, but um, the, the O three team was, was really cool. It's a pretty special team. You know, all those names that you've mentioned there, it's not short of characters in Beckett, Lowell, Derek Lee. They're all, they're all big personalities in that clubhouse. I imagine it was a lot of fun to be working with them at that time. A lot of fun, you know, and, and also I was in their same age range. Mm -hmm. And so it was just easier for me to be in that clubhouse. And they were just a good group of guys. They were fun Mm -hmm. and funny guys like Mike Redmond, um, and they just, yeah, and, and eventually the, the other part that was that was fun was one of the guys from the 97 team who I stayed connected to was Jeff Conine. Mm-hmm. And Mike Lowell broke his hand at the end of August, an amazing year. So they ended up making a trade and brought Jeff Conine back. Hmm. So he was part of both world championships. So it was, it was pretty, uh, it was a pretty great group uh, overall. And it was... Uh, it was a special memory. And and you were also obviously in Miami during the, the change of ownership, the, the Henry's moving on and taking over the Red Sox and, and, and Jeffrey Laurier coming in. That that must have been a, a bit of a strange time to be part of the Marlins franchise, I imagine. No, I mean really both changes were weird. You know, as soon as you joined the Marlins in ninety seven, Heizanga was talking about how much money they were losing and so forth. And then the change in ownership to Henry. And then eventually, you know, that movement where John Henry moved on, as you mentioned to the Red Sox and the Expos group came in and yeah, there was a lot of uncertainty and I just, I don't think any of us had any real idea of, of what to, of what to expect. So it was, uh, yeah, it was uncertain times for sure. And and I guess there's uncertain times there again. I mean, it's 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 almost 20 years on uh, since that, and oh, Jeffrey Lo- Jeffrey Laurie has moved on. But it's uh, it's it's not a barrel of fun down there in Miami these days. Out. It must be must yeah. be difficult I, for you to watch that. Yeah, it's so it's a combo of things. I would my opinion is it's a really challenging market. It, mm. I, I I would start with the you know I started down there as a talk show host, and so I felt like I got a real good idea of the the fan base. I still would say first and foremost, it is an area South Florida that likes its football mm. by far. Um, it's pro football and it's college football, mm-hmm. you know, late because the dolphins and hurricanes haven't been as good. I would say that the heat is probably the NBA mm-hmm. team is probably with Dwayne Wade as the, the face of the franchise is probably the, um, yeah, probably the, uh, the organization that that sort of stands above everybody else. But as a sport, I just don't know that it's a transient area. I don't know that they like the sport enough. And then I don't think any of the ownership groups have done a great job connecting to the community. You know, the the Jeter group, I, I think, made mistakes immediately. And I don't know that they fully understood how difficult a task that it would be. And then the clumsy stuff like, getting rid of Jeff Conine and Andre Dawson and Tony Perez and as well, 
you know, the play-by-play guy, Rich Waltz, just all of those things were, look, if they're good, people will come at least four. Um, but even when they were good in, in 03, for example, man, they were in the middle of a, a playoff run and it took a while for people to, to get back there. And fans there like to say, you know, we don't trust ownership and blah, blah, blah. And I'm not saying there's no merit to that, but I would say that at a basic level, my opinion is that in South Florida and to a lesser degree as well in Tampa, I just don't know that it's a fan base that likes the sport enough. That's really interesting. I mean, even over from this side as someone who doesn't follow football closely, as some of my colleagues on the podcast do, I can see that it's it's clearly a, clearly a football state. But one thing that's always... I thought was quite odd is that particularly in Miami where you've got such a strong Cuban diaspora who are obviously baseball mad as a country is there not more that ownerships the Jeter ownership the the Laurier ownership or whoever could do to to reach out to that that community of course Jose Fernandez uh, his tragic passing didn't help in terms of making that bridge across there he was he was the the great star for that community but no doubt, is that but something that they miss out on yeah i it it, look, it's again, it's hard for me to say. I, I will tell you that when they did data analysis back in the day, remember, Jose Fernandez isn't the first one. They had Levon Hernandez uh-huh. in 97 and Alex Fernandez, who was, um, you know, who was Latino and, and from the community as well. And there was, if, if you did a home attendance by start, there was no significant uptick in the regular season when Levon Hernandez started as opposed to when everybody else started. And I don't know, I don't know what it is in terms of why they haven't been able to capture that. The things you say are true, that there is a large Cuban population, that that is the sport of choice in Cuba, but for whatever reason, they haven't been able to capture that audience in a significant enough way. And again, I would say it's it's an example of where the market is challenging, mm-hmm. but I think that even if you nailed that, I don't know that that is enough. The other issue that you have, I mean, if you really want to break it down, one of the, one of the parts of it, and this is, you know, very inside baseball, pun intended, um, mm-hmm. it, it would be this. I, it's a tri-county area and it's really spread out. So when you're talking about Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach counties, um, you know, if you live in the top part of of Palm Beach County, you know, to go to a Marlins game, a regular season Marlins game, you're driving an hour and 20 minutes. Like that's and that, and that's wow. local. You know what I'm saying? So the and that's and, and that's one of the issues with where the stadium is, is that it's not, you know, whatever you want to say about old Dolphin Stadium, Pro Player Stadium. Hard Rock now, mm-hmm. it was, you know, kind of equidistant in terms of all the counties. Mm-hmm. And one of the places that they really wanted, and I think would have helped for the welfare of the franchise, and most people don't talk about this, but where the Florida Panthers, the hockey team plays, mm-hmm. it's out in, in West Broward. And so that's sort of Fort Lauderdale, but more West. Yeah. And that stadium was taxpayer financed. And now step back for a second and think about from an American sports standpoint, the idea that in a market such as South Florida, the hockey team and the basketball team don't share the same arena. 
In almost mm-hmm. every other place, the hockey team and the basketball team share mm-hmm. the same arena. But Heisenga and Arison didn't get along great. And so if that's if ultimately the Panthers and Heat had been able to share an arena and they could have used that taxpayer finance money to put the Marlins in that stadium way back when, I think that this may have had um, a better outcome for the Marlins. That's really interesting. So uh, from one team who has taken a lot of taxpayer dollars to move stadiums to, to another, uh, not that you are the causal link between the two, you moved on to, to do play-by-play for the Atlanta Braves. I imagine that was a, a rather different baseball market, albeit one that still has a, a, big, a big football following down there too. Yeah, I mean, I came in 07 and they did not make the playoffs any of the three years that I was there. Hmm. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, look, they were in the middle of that, you know, right on the heels of that, that 14 year division title run, which was just amazing. And, you know, for me, I would say that the part that was cool was, was getting a chance at varying, like watching Chipper Jones for three years on an everyday basis was just incredible and (laughs) getting a chance to watch John Smoltz and then later, you know, Glavin coming back. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's the Braves have been one of the marquee franchises in the sport when you, you know, basically starting from 91. So, mm-hmm. you know, you're talking about almost 30 years. They've been one of the signature franchises. So yeah, it was cool. And they, and you know, that they, they absorb some bumps and bruises in terms of the way people talk about the Braves fan base as well. But I, I would still say that they, you know, it, it's a good fan base. They, they like it. They do. Yeah, they, they, they certainly do. And um, good times ahead for them. Although it's going to be a, a, a packed division in the NL East this year. Yeah. Certainly with the, the Nationals still a good team, even without Bryce, the Phillies with Bryce, of course, uh, look look absolutely excellent. And um, we can't not mention the Mets, not least because one of my podcasting colleagues, Ben, is uh, obsessed that this year is going to be the Mets year every single year. He's never been right yet, but it doesn't yeah. stop him trying. Um, so you're obviously best known as, as the voice of Sunday Night Baseball on ESPN Radio. But as you've said yourself already, you do also cover baseball on the TV on Wednesday Night Baseball. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you how those disciplines differ. What 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 do you bring differently to the radio format from the TV format, and and in what way does your preparation for the two uh, modes differ as well? I'll take the last question first, Alex. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, that was a Jeopardy joke. Are you guys have <laughs> sorry. Anyway, we, um, we do and we don't. <laughs> yeah, right. So anyway, uh, preparation does not change for me in terms of what I am actually looking at. But in terms of the two sort of disciplines or craft, you know, it's 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 pretty straightforward, but it it takes time. I've been fortunate to do it for a long time, so I've gotten a chance to to get better and and work on it. But on the radio side as a play-by-play guy, my number one job is to paint the picture, to be as descriptive and efficient as possible, and then try and get into as much interesting stuff as I possibly can. I've always enjoyed the analytics. I've been a Bill James guy from way back in the day. Mm-hmm. Rob Nyer was a guy who influenced me a lot. So I, I feel like I've been ahead of the curve in terms of implementing know, advanced metrics and that type of thing into broadcast and just sabermetric concepts into broadcast. 
on TV, we have the ability, because the pictures are doing the talking, I can utilize some of my analytical bent and get into topics and influence content in ways um, that on radio, there just isn't space to do. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that is so great about my job is I thoroughly enjoy just the craft of calling a game and you know describing a big play in the moment, I on first and this went into the left field corner and the guy on first round, the left fielder digs the ball out of the corner and the guy is going to be sent and here's the relay throw to the shortstop and here's the throw to the, you know, getting all of those things in there, like that's so much fun. Mm. And, and also getting to nail a big call on TV, but also hoping that, you know, from time to time you tell a story that is interesting, humanizes a player that you teach, that you tell people, you know, there's a reason that teams have shifted towards batting their best hitter second because last year and the five years before that, by batting position, the spot in the order that took the most plate appearances with two outs and nobody on base was the number three spot in the order. Mm-hmm. So for as long, you know, it's, it's stuff like that. And that, if, and that if I can deliver that and then it turns into a graphic form on TV, um, so I, I just, I love doing both. So the, you know, again, I, I think on TV, I really am able to like, imprint the game with my personality and on radio um you know there's a little bit of craft and and art to describing what's uh, what's taking place so are there any calls that stick in your mind that you're particularly proud of or any any stories about a player that you've been proud to be able to tell doing the background research and being being able to have the conversation wow, that's, well, that's, lo- that's loaded um on a a call on a call I got to call Alex Gonzalez walk off homer game four of the 03 World Series Wow! and the thing I like the most about that call is that if you watch if you put it on video so, so the old Dolphin Stadium had a high wall on left but it had this little cutout inside the the foul pole down the left field line. It was like a box before the wall started to go Mm -hmm. up. So you could kind of tuck it into this little area. And I just, the the call was, was just, you know, he basically hit like a hooking line drive. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I was on the, I was on the pitch in terms of, the crack of the bat and, and, you know, being able to hear the contact. And then the word that I used that I, you know, that I think worked for what the ball did was curling, that it was curling into the corner. Um, so that that's probably the call that I think of is calling a walk off home or to tie the, it, it, it meant the Marlins to tie the series at mm-hmm. two games apiece. And, you know, that was definitely one. I got to call Halliday's, no hitter in the playoffs, which was pretty nice. special. I mean, in terms of, in terms of, um, 
when are we going to run this? When are you going to run this? Uh, probably in midweek. Okay, so I have opening day on Thursday. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I'll give you I'll give you a good one that I just dug up for my game. Cool. Um, I have so my first game this year will be the the Diamondbacks and the Dodgers for TV mm-hmm. on Thursday. I'll give you like three three decent ones, but this this is part of I love the analytics stuff and talking to GMs. But here's a good example of one. So Zach Greinke starting on Thursday and he's starting mm-hmm. against the Dodgers. And one of the topics with Zach Greinke that's kind of fun is whether people know or not he fancies himself as a bit of an amateur scout. He really <laughs> enjoys at going back to his time with the Royals. So and I remember Craig Council who I got to know with the Marlins in 97, but his last mm-hmm. year was 2011. He played with Zach. They went to the LCS and in 12 Craig retired. And he used to tell me that in spring training in Arizona, you know, they would send Craig as a special assistant to go amateur players and Granky would go with him because he was, <laughs> he would bored and he just want to go evaluate guys. And then over time, whatever team he's with, he'll ask for video of certain players. And so it's the case now with the Arizona Diamondbacks. But the good story that I dug up the other day, and again, I have Dodgers Diamondbacks, but Craig the, Craig Council told me the other day, yeah, you know who his most famous pick was in the 2012 draft, like three days before the draft. In the draft, he walked into the room, the Brewers were watching a video of a player, and Granke said, that's who you need to draft. That's the best player in the draft. And it was Corey Seager. Oh wow! <laughs> so like, I'll tell on Thursday when Granky's facing Seager, and nice. you know that's the, you know and then, and stuff like that's just fun, man, because it like humanizes. I get I've told both of these a couple of times, but they're they're both really good. And and David Ortiz was a guy over the years that I just adored to deal with. He would always. Uh, he just was never shy about, you know, giving you the good stuff. And mm-hmm. so I was doing a Sunday night game and it was the Tigers and the Red Sox. And late in the game, Jabba Chamberlain came in in the eighth. Red Sox are down 3-1 at Comerica. Ortiz hits a three-run homer to put him ahead. I, I don't know that I have the score right, but he hits a home run uh-huh. in the eighth to put them ahead. Red Sox win, Ortiz hits the late home run. And as I'm leaving the ballpark, I'm in the the parking lot, and I run into one of our camera guys. And uh, Duke, our camera guy, tells me – now, Duke is the guy who is on the field and carries the camera, um, you know, who follows the pitchers off, and then the the guy who follows the dude who hits the home run around Mm -hmm. third. So Duke says to me – you know, I got to tell you this story. Before the game, Ortiz, now he knows all the players at this point because he's down on the field, so they all talk to him. And he said to me, I got to tell you this story. Before the game, Ortiz came up to me and he goes, Dookie, when I hit the home run tonight late, I'll go slow for you so you can keep pace. Okay, baby? <laughs> and then awesome. when he hit the home run, Ortiz looked at him and goes, did I go too fast for you? So now I get that story and I happen to have Wednesday, you know, so that Sunday I'm on the radio. I'm finding this out afterwards. So Wednesday I happen to have Boston at Baltimore and I go up to Ortiz and I repeat it. And he's like, yeah, that's exactly what happened. And I was like, can I tell the story? And he said, absolutely. 
And so it's pretty cool to be able to roll back the story. And we have Duke running alongside of him <laughs> and, and telling that one. So that, that type of stuff, I just think, I mean, that's fun, man. I don't know how you, how do you not smile and, and, you know, it's enjoyable. And, and it's one of the things I love about my job. That's absolutely brilliant. I, I thought um, when you said it was David Ortiz and Jobber Chamberlain, that usually only ever ended in one outcome, really. That's right. Uh, That's right. Over, over many years. So this may be a bit of a difficult question, a bit of a loaded one, a bit like the last one. So you've worked with a lot of colour analysts over, over the course of your career in, in the box. And you work with two really brilliant ones at the moment in David Ross and Rick Sutcliffe on Wednesday Night Baseball. Who have been your favourites in terms of uh, the anecdotes that they've been able to share or their outlook on baseball? Who have you learned from in the box most of all? Well, okay, so those are two different things. So learning, you know, Dave O'Brien as a play-by-play guy influenced Mm -hmm. me greatly when I was with the Marlins and he's now the voice of the Red Sox. And, you know, he worked at ESPN as well. You know, I I appreciate you know, the, the guys who are great and you just try and learn. And so, you know, there's an NBA guy, Mike Breen, who's really good. Ian Eagle is another one who's really good. I do think that John Miller, who's the voice of the Giants and used to be voice uh-huh. of the night baseball, is someone that radio-wise years ago gave me some great mechanical advice that helped me a lot. And, and you try to use your voice. John is just so quick and brilliant. I think is is, you know... If we t- if we're going to take Vince Scully and push him to the side as in a category <laughs> of his own, I, you know I think John is as good as anybody who's who's ever done it. So so in that regard, you know you you ask questions and and learn from guys doing play by play, and then in the booth in terms of analysts, you know I work with Chris Singleton. We've been working together every year since 2011. I adore mm-hmm. the guy on the air, off the air. We have fun. He's interested in an analytics bent. Um, yeah, and, and now the guys that I work with, I think the, the thing that I enjoy is so much about Sut and Rossi is that that's pretty much how we are off the air too. Mm. You know, so last year we're doing like I, I, you know, especially network TV. There's still that element. I feel like there's a we're a little looser and I think it it serves the viewer. We're not as, you know, it's not quite as buttoned up last year. We're doing a Red Sox Phillies game and it went 11 innings. And at the end of 10, Rossi had to go up and go use the facilities. (laughs) So he comes back, but the inning had already started. So he very quietly puts his headset on. Now we hadn't, you know, gotten into anything, but as soon as he put his headset on Sut in a rare moment of being clever, looks at Rossi and goes, <laughs> that's a great point, boo. That Rossi. And he just stares ahead like a deer in the <laughs> headlights. And I turn and look at him and I'm like, well, and it's like <laughs> one, 1,000, two, 1,000, three, 1,000. And then he just blurts out, well, you guys are like camels. You never get up and go to the bathroom. So, <laughs> you know, look, it, it's, it's having fun and having, I just, I guess, you know, my boss, Phil Orland, says, I'll give him credit for it. I, I think that our group is really good at having an unpredictable conversation and it being productive and either fun or interesting or both. So that's that's really how I would I would answer all that. 
Excellent. Um, I, you've always got Dancing with the Stars to fall back on with Rossi. That's course, right. You? <laughs> I mean, uncle with that guy. That's that's the. And then at this point, you know, where we tease Rossi is like, you know, the Dancing with the Stars stuff, and then you go to Boston, and he's he's hugging Yui Hara on like every other picture because he won there, and then he goes to Chicago, <laughs> and so it's just great to be able. You know, I'll just sit there and be like dude, I'm so tired of you. Like enough, like just enough with you. Okay. And he, and he's magnificent about it. He's, he's so much fun. So I, I have that, I have that photo on my wall in my house uh, of him hugging Uahara. But if you want to tease him, you can tell him he's my second favorite player in that photo. Um, <laughs> Is that right? I got to yeah. tell you something. So I, I had the radio, you know, every year you get assigned differently, but I had the Red Sox, for the Rays series and the Tigers series. And that team was one of the more fun teams I got a chance to be around. Just with the beards, you know, another one of those guys from the Marlins days, Ryan Dempster was on that team. You know, I knew David Ross, you know, David and I met when he was a backup in Atlanta back Mm -hmm. in 2008, I want to say. So, you know, we've known each other for a long time. You know, with due respect to, you know, Rivera, whatever, and go look at the numbers. But for a single season from when they made Uihara the closer, I, I, I don't know that I've seen a closer dominate the way he did. The, the way it felt watching him pitch that year was it was like every single time that a batter would step in the box, they would say to the batter, what would you like, fastball or splitter? And the batter would say, I'll take the splitter. And he would throw a fastball. And then you'd say, yeah. what would you like? Would you like splitter? And he'd say, take the fastball. And he would throw a splitter. It was just like every single time they, they just – it was – he knew what to throw. Brilliant. I mean, brilliant. Yeah, um, he is – He is a. it's a long-running joke in our podcast, my, my love for that man. And the fact that he did it with uh, – such uh, attitude and uh, joy uh, and he was like 40 years old there's just something oh, amazing That's why, why baseball is so amazing because people like him can do things like that and the two things i think of when i think of him one was i was so part of my duties I, I didn't get to call the world series but i would do pre and post and interviews for sports center so i was down on the field at fenway when they won and he had his son he was basically it was it was he and his son the entire time. Yep. It was pretty adorable. And then the other thing, I'll give my I'll give Chris Singleton credit for this one, but as it, for the description, but I don't know whether he, he wore a glove throughout his career that was a little bigger, I would say, than the average glove. But the mm-hmm. color and Chris described the color so perfectly. Um, it was a number two pencil yellow. That was basically what the color <laughs> of his glove was. And and describe the color of his glove. And on radio, stuff like that serves well, you know? Yeah, definitely. Uh, fantastic. I'm going to get so much stick for going on about Koji Uehara in an interview with you, Boog. But there we go. <clears throat> you got to do your thing. That's I I'm, never... I'm fully, yeah. That's right. I can never resist. There are, there are certain players that I can never resist talking about. So there we go. Um, so let's move on uh, with my, my, my cheeks are maybe the color of a, 
I don't know. What's what's a bright red pencil? Number 14. Uh, so we'll move yeah. on from that uh, onto the MLB London series, which obviously we we over here are incredibly excited about. So what, what were your initial thoughts when you you heard that this was actually going to happen? It's been it's been talked about for a couple of years now. I mean, I'm excited. I've I've been to to London before and I I'm a fan of of, of football, soccer. Um, uh-huh. And I, yeah, I was, I was fired up. And I think it's also cool to, you know, to really see two of the signature teams in Major League Baseball. So I'll get to go over there and, and call the games uh, for ESPN Radio. I'll call both games. And, yeah, I'm, also, I'm excited. I, I have a, a, one of my dear friends, actually, um, works in the, the Premier League um as i hope i get his title right i think director of medicine his name is is danny donicky his father is willie donicky um oh, yeah. and the uh but danny danny works for uh for everton in the premier league so Fantastic. part of why i was excited to to go over is is getting a chance to uh to see danny cuz the 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 premier league will be uh will be on break then so um I, I'm, I could not be more fired up to come over to do those games and uh, to be in London and, uh, yeah, as, it, all of it. I was going to ask who your team is. I assume it's Everton, if you've got a connection to yes. Danny. Excellent. Yeah, Mike, I mean, Mike. wherever he is, he was, at, he was at Villa the year before. And uh-huh. um, so, yeah, so that so wherever wherever he is is where uh, is where I go. But I, 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 I love it, so. Excellent. So I, I I work in Liverpool. So I, I I'm Everton and my favourite team in in that town. Although don't tell my boss who's the mayor of Liverpool because he's a Liverpool fan. Um. So he, hopefully he's not he's not listening to this. Um. All right. So where um where would you recommend people go if they've not been to London before? Then where where are your hangouts uh, in the in the times that you've been before? Where where have you particularly enjoyed and where will you, where will you be going back to? I've only been once, so uh-huh. and it was a long time ago. It was 2004, um, and my my buddy was over there living, um, and he lived in a really cool area. He lived over by uh, by Kensington Palace, right on the oh, wow. the edge of the park, and that is cool. And I would just. You know, we get. I was there for probably eight days, and I, I just, I would set out and just walk everywhere. And I think, as a, as a native New Yorker, there was something about London I just found so manageable. And and you know, the the underground system was easy to manage, and just being able to walk all over the place. Yeah. And it's so big, so um, I, I don't have. I, I, I'm gonna need my share of recommendations and I will, I will be asking you where to go to hang out. Um, so I, I don't, uh, I'm not informed enough to, to have anything for you in that regard. Well, there's going to be, there's going to be plenty of action. There's going to be pl- plenty of fan parties. There's going to be a big fan park that MLB's London office is setting up. Um, there's going to be all sorts, but yeah, let's, let's have a conversation nearer to June. I can, I can tell you which bars to go to, where, where to go and get the best food for sure. All right. Um, so we'll we'll finish up with a, a couple of questions about the off season uh, and looking ahead to 20, 2019, but not just to London, uh, as we're we're a little bit myopic about that at the moment, as I'm sure you can understand. Sure. Um, 
who, in your opinion, has had uh, the best off season? I know this is always a, a bit of a, a reductive question, but is, th- is there anyone who you think has had a sneakily good off season, other than the Yankees, who've obviously been amazing and have signed the best bullpen anyone's ever seen? Other than okay. them, who else looks exciting? So, I, what I will, and I'm not to be disagreeable. I don't think in those terms. Like, mm-hmm. I just think about who's going to be good. You know yeah. what I'm saying? So I don't. Yeah, I don't. I may- agree. When I start in the American League, it's kind of a bummer. Man, it's the same four teams. Like yeah. it, the, the, on the American League side, it's either going to be New York, Boston, Houston, or Cleveland. Period. Mm-hmm. Like that's it. And and the and the rest of the American League, I would I might add the Rays and maybe the Twins in there. Otherwise, I don't think that there's a you know there are little things that you can touch on National League side. You know, you touched on it. I think the National League East, save the Marlins, is going to be interesting. Like, mm. I think that the Mets have a chance to be good. Look, their ability to prevent runs with the starters that they roll out there mm-hmm. is, you know, is pretty obvious. How will they score? How will they defend? I think what's the bullpen like? I think those are all at least things. But you're not questioning the starting pitching as long as it's healthy. So, you know, if you told me the Mets were going to – be right there in contention for the division, it would not surprise me at all. I think that the Phillies will be, again, I think will be very good. Real Muto and Harper being added to that team. You know, last year, the one thing to remember, they were a really poor defensive team. I mean, really, really poor. And that has to get better. I think Segura should help that at least a bit. Um, but that you know, the Marlins are the free wins in that division, and I know that's not a, a nice term. But and then in the Central, I think the Central is brutal. You know, you yeah. have the three teams and the Cubs, the Brewers, and the Cardinals. I think the Cardinals and the and the Brewers both can win that division. Yeah. But then you know, you go to Pittsburgh and face Tyon and the you know the rest of those guys. Um, you know they're they got they have pitching, man. So yeah. I, I Archer as well, yeah. No doubt. And so I you know, I sit there and look at their at their team. And then and then the other component is um, you know, think about Cincinnati. You know, the pitching isn't great, but they can score, man. So I, I think that, you know, the central is probably as competitive a, a division as there is. The West I think the Dodgers are it. Hundred wins again, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say so. I, I don't, I don't see that. Um, I don't see that changing. I just don't. I think that they're they're going to be elite and use their and use their depth. So that's kind of, I guess that's sort of my you know my general uh, synopsis of what I'm what I'm expecting for this year. But I mean, look, seemingly every year there's there are teams. That you know, nobody saw the A's coming. Yeah. I don't think people thought that the Brewers would be a you know ninety-five-ish win type team. Um, so I, I, there's there's always the chance for a surprise. I do think that for baseball, it 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 has moved back a tiny bit towards being a little predictable towards mm-hmm. advantage, bigger payroll teams, and I don't like that. But um. You know, I'm hoping it'll be 
yeah, I'm hoping it'll it'll change. So, so that that rolls into to my next question, which which will be my last question quite well actually. I wanted to ask your view of how this off season has gone on on the other side of side of the ball from the, from the player side of things. We've seen some sort of unprecedented extensions by how the market in baseball has gone from the last 20 years, you know, the Severinos, Snells and so on, taking taking deals that maybe wouldn't have been countenanced this time, maybe even three, four years ago. Still a lot of teams tanking. You've mentioned the Marlins, teams like the Royals, who just look like they've got no chance, the Tigers, White Sox, who look like they've got no chance whatsoever for the next few years. Is this the new norm or is there a way that baseball can get past this? I think that we're far enough into this podcast that I need to first ask you a question just to confirm. Did you use wouldn't have been countenanced? Yes, I did. Okay. Well played. I <laughs> I, I, I could do a, a podcast in America for the next 60 years and I will never get that thrown at me. So well done by you. I, all I want is now for you to talk about who plays whom and refer to it as the schedule and good, good for um for the uh, for the English version of it. So I will try um, my best. I'm teasing you. <laughs> yes, I uh I, I agree that those those deals would not have been advised uh three or four years ago. I think the players association is in a bad place. I I think this um the game is being run by these uber smart guys and they have by and large a pretty similar vantage point on how to value players and they exercise a discipline. And what's taking place now is that these players, when you heard them beef, were sitting there saying, we're used to getting paid a lot of money at the end of our six years of service time. And now mm. it doesn't seem like we're consistently having that happen. What the heck is going on? And the bottom line is it's a, it's a system that was designed to reward older players. And yeah. that is not the way these general managers and personnel people do it. I think they do need to change the system. I think service time manipulation, for example, is horrid. I don't think it's funny. I don't like the idea of, you know, it's it's within the rules. It is not within the rules. I've made this point before. No one, Chris Bryant included, has won a grievance towards service time manipulation. If you ask these teams while they're doing it off the record, they will tell you they're manipulating service time. If anybody actually said on the record, we're manipulating service time, the team would lose the grievance. That should tell you that there are rules. It's, just, it's this stupid, you know, kind of dance that goes on. Um, but the system needs to change, the, you know, the, because we've moved to the place where you're getting production out of younger players. The game is skewing younger. They're not valuing the older guys. I don't know where it leads. I really hope – you know, I'm a dork when it comes to this stuff. I want to see the game thrive. I just do. Yeah. And – you know, I make this point all the time. You know, in America, the NBA is very popular. I guess you could say by popularity, it is more popular than baseball. It certainly skews younger. But I still make the point that if baseball made $10.5 billion in U.S. dollars and the NBA last year made $7.5 billion, 
Like, why is the thing that's not as popular so much more profitable? So I, you know, again, people are consuming this product, um, but they need to realize that there are problems ahead. Like there's an iceberg coming, whether it's pace of play um, or marketing to younger kids, they, they need to address these things. But I really hope that we're not headed towards a work stoppage. But at the moment, I, I would say that the game is not in a great space uh, on that front. It's a, it's an iceberg, and it's got a picture of Dallas Keuchel stuck on the front of it. Oh, I'd say right. <laughs> that's right, an iceberg with a giant beard on it. Yeah, that's yeah, right. no mustache, a uh, bit of an odd one, but there you go. Uh, <laughs> what an image! Uh, I think that's a, a good image upon which to to leave. Uh, I like it. So I shall I shall thank you very much for your time uh, this this afternoon, your time, evening, my time, Boog. It was a, a pleasure talking to you, and uh, hopefully we can see you in the booth uh, come the end of June this year. Yeah, bank on it, John. My pleasure. Look forward to it. Great, thank you very much.